It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. One of the most enduring legends of folk creatures you can find throughout history are those elusive woodland dwellers we call fairies. In the modern day, when we think of fairies, we tend to conjure up images of cute little spirits flitting about on gossamer wings. But you can find legends of tiny creatures we would think of as fairies in cultures all around the world. For example, some African cultures have stories about a benevolent fairy race known as the Aziza, who are believed to bring good luck to hunters. The ancient Greeks told of magical creatures known as the Zena, who were said to guide lost travelers to safety. But at the same time, much of what most of us would think of as traditional fairy lore stems from Celtic mythology. And although the majority of fairy stories tend to depict them as benevolent and shy forest creatures, some of the tales can be downright menacing. One story from 1757 tells of a British cleric named Edward Williams who claimed that as a young boy he and some other children had been playing in a field when they witnessed a strange procession of eight tiny couples dressed in red. Each of these minuscule figures stood only a couple inches tall. When the strange creatures noticed the children gawking at them, they shrieked at them and angrily chased them away. There's a 1911 book by Walter Yeeling Evans Wentz called The Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries that tells of an elderly man named Neil Colton who claimed when he was a boy in 1853 he had his own scary encounter with some fairies. Colton claimed that one summer day he, his brother, and his cousin were out gathering berries in the forest when they began hearing some strange ethereal music wafting through the air. They followed the sound deeper into the woods only to come to a clearing where they encountered a group of tiny people all dressed in red, singing and dancing around a circle. When one of the women noticed they were being watched, she snatched up a stick and ran at the children, smashing the cousin in the face. The children ran for their lives, but along the way, some sort of spell appeared to come over the cousin. Suddenly, the girl fainted and couldn't be woken up. The girl's father went to get the local priest who prayed over the girl's body until she slowly came to. But even after she awoke... Colton claimed the girl was never quite the same again. This is a recurring theme among many fairy stories, the idea that fairies can cast some sort of magic spell over people that changes them dramatically. In many legends, certain types of fairies are said to kidnap unwitting victims, usually children and especially infants, and replace them with exact copies that somehow just aren't quite right. The poet William Butler Yeats once wrote about these creatures. They steal our children and leave a withered fairy. 1,000 or maybe 2,000 years old, instead. At times, full-grown men and women have been taken. Near the village of Colony lives an old woman who was taken in her youth. When she came back at the end of seven years, she had no toes, for she had danced them off. There's even a specific name for this particular type of fairy. Changelings. I'm Nate Hale, and I'm me. I swear. Or am I? And this is The Conspirators.
The idea that fairy changelings kidnap children and replace them was often used as an excuse by our ancestors to explain away the terrible treatment some people with developmental disabilities received. In fact, one of the terms used to describe people who exhibited symptoms of some sort of mental deficiency was an off, which is where we derive the term oaf from today. Sadly, this was pretty common throughout history. People who suffered from a disability or didn't conform to society's norms in some way were often singled out as being different, which then led some people to decide they were most likely not human at all. According to traditional Irish legends, there were a number of ways you could tell if an individual had been replaced by a changeling. For one, a fairy child would often remain sickly and wouldn't grow in size like a normal child. They also might exhibit other abnormalities like unusually large teeth or strange hair growth. One of the other common beliefs about changelings was that they had an insatiable appetite. You could put pretty much anything from a bowl of potatoes to a plate full of nails in front of them, and they would eat it. In 1726, George Waldron, a noted poet and topographer, wrote a book titled A Description of the Isle of Man, in which he spends a decent amount of pages criticizing the locals for their superstitious fear of changelings. He even claimed to have been presented with one in person. Waldron said the boy he was introduced to was about five or six years old with long, thin limbs. He didn't talk, cry, or eat much of anything. He was also unable to walk or stand. According to the boy's parents, if they left him alone and spied on him through a window, they could see the fairies sneaking out and washing and combing the boy's hair. In terms of the large family structures that were common throughout Europe centuries ago, it's not entirely difficult to see how some parents could come to justify some truly heinous behavior towards one of their own if they also came to believe they weren't contributing to the family. These creatures were said to drain all the luck from a house, leaving a family to struggle with poverty. Back a couple centuries ago, children were expected to work around the house. If one of the children had a developmental disability or some other birth defect, and thus were unable to prove themselves useful, it became an easy way to justify some truly terrible behavior. For example, if a family member did nothing more than sit around and eat the family's precious food, then it became that much easier for some parents to claim the child wasn't really human, and therefore deserved to be cast out or even killed. Some methods that were prescribed in order to weed out the evil creatures would involve things like placing iron objects around an infant's bed, burning leather in the room, giving the mother and child the milk of a cow that had eaten of a particular medicinal herb known as pearlwort, or even suspending a child over a fire while the other parent forced the child to consume a poisonous tea made from the toxic flower foxglove. It was said that as the child's body rejected the poison and began to expel vomit and bodily waste, so too would the fairy be expelled as well. And if the child died from the poison, oh well, at least they didn't die a fairy. Court records throughout the late 19th century in Germany, Great Britain, Scandinavia, and Ireland reveal numerous incidents of torture and murder of suspected changelings. Although in the centuries prior to that, the criminal records become more sparse, because in many instances, these horrible acts weren't even considered crimes. In one rare exception, in 1690, a man and woman from Gotland, Sweden, were put on trial for leaving a sickly 10-year-old boy to die of exposure by placing him in a manure pile overnight on Christmas Eve. In July 1826, a woman from southwestern Ireland named Anne Roche was caring for a 4-year-old boy named Michael Leahy. According to Anne's own testimony, the boy wasn't able to walk, talk, or do anything else a boy his age should be able to do. Anne became absolutely convinced that this wasn't a boy at all 
and was instead a fairy. In order to prove this, Anne Roche dunked the boy three times in icy waters, trying to drive out the fairy within. Instead, the boy drowned, and Anne was tried for murder. But the jury agreed with Anne's claims that the boy wasn't human, and therefore found her not guilty. Another story from 1845 tells of a terrified mother who put her baby in a basket full of kindling and hung the basket over a fire until it burst into flames. A similar tale from 1851 tells of a father who roasted his child to death because he too believed him to be a changeling. It wasn't always the parents either who did these terrible things to kids. Sometimes the terrified local townsfolk would step in if they suspected a child had become a changeling. In 1884, the neighbors of a three-year-old boy named Philip Dillon waited for the boy's mother to leave the house when they snuck in to seize the child. Philip was born unable to use his arms and legs, which the neighbors decided was clearly because at some point he'd been replaced by a fairy. One of the neighbors lit a fire while the other used a large shovel to push the boy toward the flames. In this instance, although he was severely burned, Philip managed to survive the ordeal. But if you had to pick one incident out of history that demonstrated how fear of changelings could drive someone to commit the most heinous acts, there is one name that stands out. It's a well-known tale out of County Tipperary, Ireland, about a young woman who was brutally murdered because her husband came to believe she had been replaced by a changeling. It's a story that has inspired numerous books, movies, and songs. A story about a woman named Bridget Cleary. Before we continue, I want to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Raycon. I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm always looking at a screen, now more than ever. And whether you're an avid news watcher or in serious need of a distraction, unplugging yourself is easier said than done. One of my favorite ways to rest my eyes and still get the content I'm itching for? By putting in my Raycon wireless earbuds and listening to something great. Whether you're catching up on your favorite news podcast, binging an audiobook, or powering through your workout with a pumped-up playlist, a pair of Raycons in your ears can make all the difference. My Raycon earbuds both look and sound great, and I've used them more than once to edit podcasts just like the one you're listening to now. No dangling wires or stems to get in your way here. Raycons come in a range of stylish colors, but always with a comfortable in-ear fit for a more discreet look. Raycons are built to perform anywhere and anytime with water and sweat-resistant construction and Bluetooth that pairs quickly and seamlessly. And with enough battery life for six hours of playtime, you can unplug for a while. The best part? Raycon makes great sound accessible to everyone, with wireless earbuds starting at half the price of other premium audio brands. Right now, Raycon's offering 15% off all their products for my listeners, and here's what you got to do to get it. Go to buyraycon.com TC. That's it. You'll get 15% off your entire Raycon order. So feel free to grab a pair and a spare. That's 15% off at buyraycon.com TC. Buyraycon.com TC. And now, back to the show. During the mid-18th century, Ireland's rural population began to grow at a rate of about 2% per year, growing from 2 million in 1741 to just under 9 million by 1847. That's a lot of hungry mouths to feed, which meant the rural poor came to depend heavily on a diet of potatoes and buttermilk, both of which were plentiful, at least for a time. Although some parts of Ireland, such as Ulster, were bolstered by a budding industrial revolution, Many of the poor farming families found themselves in a bind as they tried to eke out a meager existence on increasingly smaller plots of rented land. Much of this land was owned by absentee Anglo-Irish and Protestant landlords living abroad, 
Tensions between the classes simmered throughout the early 19th century, escalating to violence in the Rockite Rebellion of the 1820s. This was just the first of several major protests in which the mostly Catholic peasantry rose up against heavy taxation by the Protestants. Ireland had remained governed from London since the Union of 1801 abolished the Irish Parliament. The rulers promised they would eventually give equal rights to the Catholics all in due time. Due time would ostensibly begin in 1829 when the Catholic emancipation occurred. Further reforms would occur over the next few decades, slowly giving Catholics more control. But none of these reforms really did much to help the growing divide between the rich and poor. This truly came to a head in 1845 when a potato blight spread all the way from North America to Europe. This particular fungus caused widespread starvation throughout Europe. Estimates say about 100,000 people either starved to death or succumbed to illness throughout much of the continent. But Ireland, which had become dependent on the potato as a food staple, saw ten times that many deaths between 1845 to 1851. Not only did potato crops fail year after year, but then, to make matters worse, many greedy landlords began evicting tens of thousands of starving families from their land as well, when they couldn't pay the rent. With reports of mass starvation and poverty threatening to bring further catastrophic ruin to Ireland, the British government was forced to enact even more reforms to tackle the problem. By the late 19th century, a board of governors was set up for each district and were given the task of dispensing public assistance. One of the tasks they were also responsible for involved setting up public housing for displaced farmers and their families. Tiny cottages were built to house these agricultural workers who were desperately needed to rebuild the country's ravaged food supplies. One cottage in particular was built in the tiny community of Ballyvadley. When I say tiny, I mean it. There were only nine homes and 31 people living there. And yet, of all the places for the board to have built a home, they picked the one location that many superstitious locals say should never have been built on. They constructed the cottage on the remnants of an Iron Age ring fort known as a raft. The problem is many locals believe the circular mound to actually be the property of the fairies. Many stories of fairy rings actually come from a naturally occurring phenomenon in which wild mushrooms will grow in a circular pattern. Although over the centuries many superstitious people would come to point to any sort of circular pattern in the ground as clearly having been put there by fairies. And one thing everyone knew you were never supposed to do was step foot in one, much less build a house on top of one. The first family who lived in the cottage built on the alleged fairy circle abruptly left after they claimed to have heard strange cries in the night and felt a constant sensation of dread. After that, the cottage was given to a retired laborer named Patrick Boland, who had an adult daughter named Bridget, who later came to live with him. By the late 19th century, it was commonly expected that the man of the house would be the breadwinner of the family while women were expected to stay home, do the household chores, and have babies. But the Cleary household was unusual, whereas Michael Cleary did make a decent living as a cooper, making and repairing barrels for the local creamery. His wife Bridget actually began to outdo Michael's success after she started her own business making dresses and keeping hens. There was a lot about Bridget Cleary that was considered out of the ordinary. Patrick Boland and his wife, who was also named Bridget, had ensured their daughter would have a good life and be able to support herself from an early age. She'd been educated by local nuns and apprenticed to a dressmaker in Clonmel, where she would eventually meet her husband Michael. Throughout her life, Bridget remained unusually high-spirited, outgoing, and flirtatious. She was also quite beautiful and caught the eyes of a lot of men, 
none of which set well with her future husband. Bridget and Michael got married in 1887. They seemed like an odd match right from the beginning. Michael was nine years older than Bridget and was known to be dour and sullen, whereas Bridget was the polar opposite. Michael's work as a cooper also kept them apart for long stretches, so she ended up moving back to Ballyvadley to live with her parents. After Bridget's mother fell ill, it became Bridget's duty to care for her. It was during this period where Bridget's independence grew. She started raising chickens and selling the eggs. She then took the proceeds from that business and bought herself a Singer sewing machine, which was considered to be a major extravagance at the time. From there, Bridget began making and selling dresses, and her fortunes just grew and grew. Michael would eventually come to live with them in the cottage, but although he and Bridget's financial situation was looking up, there were still plenty of other marital problems they had to contend with. For one, Michael didn't like that a lot of the reasons they were able to live well above the poverty line was because of Bridget's earnings. Another problem was that they never had any children throughout the eight years they were married. On top of all that, rumors began to circulate that Bridget may have begun having an affair with another man. And then there were still the fairies to contend with as well. Belief in fairies remained strong throughout the region. A big part of the reason Patrick Boland was granted the cottage was because no one else wanted to live there, since everyone just assumed it was cursed by fairies. This sort of superstitious belief was pervasive throughout rural Ireland. It was common for children to be raised in a strict Catholic household, being simultaneously taught both the Bible and that fairies were real. Children would be instructed throughout their lives to do things like be sure they leave untasted food on the table for fairy visitors and to say bless you to them from time to time. Fairies were also blamed for everything that went wrong as well. If you were injured, lost something, saw your crops fail, or had your milk get spoiled, fairies were clearly to blame. Likewise, if someone's personality changed or they began to act in a way that made them stand out publicly, then suspicions would often arise that they had been replaced by a fairy changeling. So, of course, some locals were quick to suggest fairies had cast a spell over Bridget Cleary. Bridget's sudden wealth, as well as her unusually high spirits and independence from her husband, all pointed to fairies being the cause. Not only did Bridget and her family live on top of a fairy wrath, but other associations with fairies began to be made about her as well. Part of Bridget's egg delivery rounds took her over Kalanagrag Hill, another alleged fairy fort. This same route also took her near the home of her father's cousin, a man named Jack Dunn. Not only was the man kin, but he was also what was known as a Shanchai, the local expert in fairy lore. March of 1895 came on the tail end of an especially bitter winter. It was on a delivery run during a period of particularly nasty weather that Bridget fell ill with a fever. She spent the next few days in bed, suffering from chills, a cough, and a raging headache. Her body shook constantly, and she was often drenched in sweat. That Saturday, Bridget's father walked four miles in the pouring rain to find a doctor, but the local doctor couldn't make himself available until the following Wednesday. When the doctor finally did stop by, he declared that Bridget had a case of, quote, nervous excitement and slight bronchitis, after which he prescribed some medication. But... This didn't sit well with Jack Dunn, who later told Bridget's husband, Michael, that he should ignore the doctor's orders because he knew for a fact that this was not his wife in bed. It was, in fact, a changeling. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. 
Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. During all those days with Bridget suffering in bed, Michael Cleary had a lot of time to consider Dunn's suggestion that this wasn't really Bridget. Just look at how pale and weak she was. Look at how thin she was. He even became convinced this creature was two inches taller than his wife had been. On Wednesday afternoon after the doctor left, a priest stopped by to visit and administer the last rites. It's unclear whether Bridget was really that close to death or whether they were just covering their bases in case her condition worsened. In either case, Don urged Michael to act swiftly or else he might lose his beloved Bridget forever. Don recommended that Michael consult a man named Dennis Ganey, the local fairy doctor. Ganey prescribed an herbal mix that he said contained the nine cures that would fix Bridget's fairy troubles. This potion was to be administered to Bridget by mixing it with so-called new milk, the first milk produced by a cow after calving. Folk healers across Ireland each had their own special concoction for curing someone of being a changeling. But keep in mind, since a lot of those remedies contained the poisonous herb foxglove, those often turned out to be a very final cure as well. Another fairy remedy they used involved performing a ritual exorcism on the creature. Around 10 o'clock that night, William Simpson, a local caretaker, and his wife Minnie stopped by the cottage to see how Bridget was doing. They had seen lights on inside the cottage and could hear loud, angry voices coming from inside and had become concerned. Michael Cleary let them in, but the scene they witnessed was one of pure chaos. Jack Don and a few of Bridget's cousins, Patrick, James, and William, were circled around Bridget, pinning her to the bed. Bridget's aunt, Mary Kennedy, stood nervously by as Michael Cleary tried to force the milk and herb concoction down Bridget's throat. Bridget was gagging and screaming. The men shouted threats at her to take it, witch, or they'd kill her. Michael kept pouring the liquid down her throat and covering her mouth and nose, forcing her to swallow. All along, he kept loudly demanding for her to tell him whether she was really Bridget Cleary or not. The horrified Simpsons could also see a large burn on Bridget's forehead that had been put there by a hot poker earlier. The ritual continued and the men doused Bridget with another potion that was primarily made of urine. After the third go-round in which they forced Bridget to swallow the bitter herb concoction, the men hauled her out of bed and began to shake her violently, trying to drive the evil spirit out of her. Jack Dunn told the others this wasn't working they needed to use fire to get the changeling to admit what it was. The men carried Bridget over to the fireplace and held her next to the flames while her own father asked her, Are you the daughter of Patrick Boland, the wife of Michael Cleary? I am, Dada was all Bridget could say in response. The ritual carried on throughout the rest of the night and into the following day. The next morning, a priest arrived to say Mass in Bridget's bedroom in order to drive the evil spirits from the home. Eventually, many of the visitors who stood vigil around Bridget Cleary during the night became so overwhelmed by the torture they witnessed that they tried to leave. But Michael, who had clearly come undone, locked the door and told everyone no one was leaving until he had his Bridget back. On Friday, March 15th, Witnesses stated that Bridget managed to climb out of bed and stand on her own two feet. She even pulled on some clothes and tried telling the others she was feeling well enough to go out. Several family members were in attendance, unsure what to make of this. But even as things appeared to be calming down, they soon erupted into violence again. At one point, Bridget said she was thirsty and asked for some milk. This only sent Michael's suspicions back into overdrive since fairies were said to urine fresh milk. One thing we'll never know throughout this entire ordeal is why Bridget didn't confess. It had to be clear at some point she didn't have much to lose, but we'll never really know what Bridget's state of mind was throughout her ordeal. 
Perhaps she was exhausted. Perhaps she was afraid. Perhaps her stubborn independence rose to the surface one last time. Perhaps she was so far gone from the fever and the torture that she just couldn't think clearly enough. Already fueled with fresh suspicions when Bridget asked for some milk, Michael demanded she eat three pieces of bread and jam and started up again demanding she tell him her name. She answered twice and ate two of the three pieces of toast. But when she refused the third, Michael snapped. He said a piece of bread broken into threes was symbolic of the Holy Eucharist. Michael flung Bridget to the floor and began ripping off her clothes. Several of the witnesses cried out for Michael to stop, but Michael was too far gone by then. He knelt on Bridget's chest, then he grabbed a lamp and doused her with oil. After that, he reached for a burning log from the fireplace and lit the still-breathing Bridget Cleary on fire. A few people cried out for someone to put out the flames, but no one did. Michael told everyone, she's not my wife, she's an old deceiver sent in place of my wife. Bridget Cleary was just 26 years old on the day she burned alive, surrounded by her friends and family. Once the blaze died down, Michael wrapped Bridget's remains in a sheet and shoved it in a large bag. Then he hauled the corpse outside, leaving Bridget's family inside terrified and unsure what to do next. They waited inside for an hour, praying for guidance. When Michael finally returned, he came in carrying a knife and threatening to kill Bridget's cousin Patrick unless he helped him dispose of the body. The two men carried the remains about a quarter mile uphill from the cottage and buried it in a shallow grave. When Michael returned to the cottage, he swore everyone to secrecy. The following morning, Michael went to the local church and met with Jack Dunn. Dunn tried to convince Michael to confess to a priest, but when the priest saw how distraught Michael was, he decided he was in no condition to receive the Holy Sacrament. Dunn spoke for Michael instead. He told the priest while he hadn't personally witnessed the incident, he did say that Michael had confessed to him that he had burned his wife alive for being a changeling. He wondered if it wasn't too late to arrange for a Christian burial for her. The priest later informed the police what the men had told him, adding that he thought them both insane. Police combed the greenfields around Ballyvadley over the next several days looking for Bridget Cleary. Eventually, they found the young woman's body partially covered beneath several inches of clay and a cluster of thorn bushes. Her remains exhibited signs of extreme torture. Her head was covered with a sack. She was naked except for a single stocking and one gold earring. Her spine and lower extremities were so badly burned that part of her skeleton was visible. While all this was going on, Michael remained unstable. He spoke openly about possibly fleeing the country or committing suicide. At the same time, he kept holding out hope that his real wife would return to him. He spent three consecutive nights praying inside the ring fort on Kalanagrog Hill, where he told people he expected Bridget to return to him riding a white horse. He said that he believed he only needed to cut the ropes that bound her to the horse in order to free her forever. On Wednesday, March 20th, the Royal Irish Constables arrested Michael Cleary, as well as eight of the people who had been in attendance the night of her murder. They also arrested Dennis Ganey, the ferry doctor, Bridget's body was discovered two days later. On March 25th, the defendants were brought before the magistrates to answer for their crimes. On July 5th, Michael Cleary was found guilty of manslaughter and sent to prison along with Jack Dunn, Patrick Boland, and four of Bridget's cousins. Charges against one defendant, William Ahern, were dropped. Each of the remaining defendants received sentences ranging from six months to several years. In the case of Michael Cleary, the judge declared the verdict of manslaughter rather than premeditated murder to be the appropriate judgment. Since it was decided that Michael had acted out of a genuine belief, he was doing the right thing. Michael Cleary was released from prison in 1910. After that, he reportedly sailed to Montreal, 
and from there vanishes from the historical record. Jack Dunn served three years behind bars before returning to the area and working as a laborer. Before he was sent to prison, Michael laid all the blame on Dunn, who said goaded him into believing Bridget was a changeling. Although, according to Bridget's aunt, Mary Kennedy, there may have been more to the story than was originally believed. It was long known about the simmering tensions between Michael and his wife over Bridget's independence, success, and rumors of an affair. Mary Kennedy later told police that while Bridget was sick in bed, she confided in her that even though Michael was claiming she was a fairy now, Michael had threatened to burn her three months earlier as well. A 2006 article from the Irish Journal of Medical Science suggests Michael may have been suffering from a psychotic delusion known as Capgrass Syndrome, in which a person comes to believe someone else has been replaced by an imposter. This is a real psychological condition which continues to have dire consequences even today. In 2014, a Louisiana father suffering from Capgrass Syndrome beheaded his seven-year-old and left the boy's head in the boy's mother's driveway. According to the study's authors, Michael Cleary's mental condition may have deteriorated after dealing with a combination of factors, his wife's illness, sleep deprivation, and recent news of his own father's death, which he learned of at the same time Bridget lay sick in bed. But no matter what the underlying cause was of the tragic death of Bridget Cleary, even today her story remains well known throughout Ireland. Back in the late 19th century, the British government used the incident as an excuse to prove everything they said about the Irish was true that there were a bunch of violent savages unable to rule themselves. Today, there's even still a nursery rhyme you can hear in schoolyards all across the country that children skip rope to. It goes, Are you a witch, or are you a fairy, or are you the wife of Michael Clary? We like to think of ourselves as an advanced species. We live in an age of science and technological advancement, having spent centuries driving superstition and fear of mythical creatures into the darkest corners of history. And yet stories like that of Bridget Cleary reveal just how little progress so-called modern man has come. Fear has often driven people to act irrationally and to make horrific decisions. Keep in mind, this wasn't some twisted story out of the medieval Dark Ages. This incident occurred just a couple years shy of the start of the 20th century. If there is any lesson to be taken from this story, it's that there is a certain degree of horrible irony in the tale of Bridget Cleary. Bridget's husband and family became so fearful that Bridget had been replaced by an inhuman creature that they themselves changed into real monsters. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to TJP and Jamie for signing up and helping support the show. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of terrific bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our exclusive bonus mini-episodes. They're just like our regular episodes, only fairy-sized. If you're interested and able to help us out, I'll put a link to our Patreon in the show notes. Your support helps me keep the lights on, pays for equipment, research materials, and all sorts of other things that helps me keep bringing fresh stories to you. Another great way you can help support the show is to head over to our merch store where you can get all sorts of nifty conspirators designs and everything from t-shirts to pillowcases to phone cases and much, much more. One other completely free way you can help support the show... It also really helps us out is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's magical rankings, which then helps spread the good word about the show to more folks just like you. If you're not an Apple, not to worry. You can also find our show on Spotify, Stitcher, and most of the other places you get your podcasts. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. We're also on social media. 
Check us out and follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and our Facebook page. Feel free to drop us a line at any of those places or send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again, as always, for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time. Lastly, before we go, I'd like to introduce you to another podcast you might be interested in. Oh, hey there. You like true crime stories, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. Who doesn't? But I gotta admit, after a while, all those stories of murder and heartache, well, they tend to go straight to my hips. So that's why I, Leroy Luna, have created a podcast called Excuse Me, That's Illegal, where we'll take a hardcore look at some softcore crimes. No TED Talks on Bundy here. The letters BTK won't be coming from these lips. Unless he had a brother that used to steal library books. Suppose I'd be willing to go balls deep into that one if that were the case. Anyways, you'll hear stories such as the Mad Pooper, a female jogger who wreaked havoc in a Colorado Springs neighborhood, using one family's front yard as her own personal dumping grounds. If this kind of content sounds like it's up your alley, excuse me, that's illegal. It's available right now on all your favorite podcatchers. So come join me. I'll be right here waiting for you.